Welcome back to the Growing Band Director Podcast. This is episode number 128. I'm really excited today to be meeting with one of the premier writers and instructors for percussion in the country. His name is Lee Allman. He teaches front ensemble and is also the writer for Avon High School. And if you know anything about uh, Bands of America, you see that uh, Avon just won their fourth national BOA um, championship this month. And he's a, a big reason why. So he, his bio is pretty extensive. He's uh, also part of Rhythm X and Cavaliers front ensemble staff. Um, he's also in the past written for drum corps as the Troopers, Crossman, and Carolina Crown. So I'm really blessed to have him um, devote some time with us today. And please keep in mind that even if you're not a marching band instructor, what we're going to be talking about is percussion. So if you have percussionists, then this episode is going to have a lot for you. We're going to talk about things um, like warm-ups, things you can do, and tips that he has for warm-ups, including the packet that he uses that you're welcome to have that will be on the show notes of this as well. We'll talk about some basic things to do to, to develop a technique, uh, specifically for mallet players. Things like playing in the zone, like where is the zone on the keys? Where should you strike it? Where should you not? Um, options you have and things like that. When do you use right-hand lead? When do you use left-hand lead? Uh, all these things we're going to talk about. Um, arranging tips. If you're writing for your groups or or you have an arranger, I would also mention, please make sure that if you have somebody who is a front ensemble or mallet percussion person um, that you know who's a friend of yours, please send them this episode so they can learn as well. Uh, we're going to talk about instrumentation, like how many of each should you use depending on your group and uh, what kind of students should go on which instruments and uh, all that. Um, and then he's got a lot of do's and don'ts, things that people do and maybe shouldn't do and things that over his time teaching he's learned that should that uh, should help all of us. So uh, buckle up. Here's Lee Allman. Lee, thank you for being here on the Growing Band Director podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Um, hey, I'm, I'm, it's pleasure's all mine. Trust me. Um, so you're in Indiana and in sort of a hotbed of a lot of amazing programs. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that sort of situation, maybe what makes it tick and, and what's so special about your area? Uh, Indiana has always had a great uh, band scene through ISMA. Um, and just with the longevity of that and the proximity of everyone, it kind of has a competitive uh, a friendly competitive effect that we uh, tend to kind of drag one another upwards. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it's very highly competitive, but it, uh, in a friendly way. And I assume the directors are friendly with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're all out there fighting the same fight, putting in the, the same amount of hours. Absolutely. It, it's a, supportive community throughout the Indianapolis area. Just yeah. see. One uh, thing that's important for people, I think, to understand is even though you're working with one of the top programs in the country, just because your program isn't one of the biggest or top programs in the country, you're putting in all that work too. And, and sometimes teachers don't get recognized for that. So on a week of Thanksgiving, I want to thank all the teachers out there. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about Avon. Tell us what you do there and kind of why, what makes Avon tick. So this is my 12th year working at Avon. I started as just being a front ensemble instructor. And over the years, I have grown into 
arranging for that front ensemble, uh, was the percussion director for a couple of years before then handing some of the administrative duties off to Tony Cook, who now runs the percussion program. But I teach uh, the percussion section and all the after school rehearsals for marching band, indoor drumline. I teach classes usually one to two during the day. And I also help to write and design the indoor drumline show as well as the marching band show. So question, every program kind of runs it differently, what works for them. Um, during the fall, is Avon's marching band um, being rehearsed during the day as well as after school or just after school or just during the day? It is being rehearsed during the day. We are lucky enough that the classes are set up largely in sections. Now it's not a hundred percent, but there is a percussion class where all of the percussion section is in that class. There's a guard class, um, like a high brass class, things of that nature. And then does it stay that way after the marching band season throughout the year? Uh, we then go into a more traditional concert band uh, for the, the wind ensemble, but because we have the winter guard and the indoor drum line, we still have a class for that during the second semester as well, during the WGI season. Great. Um, so you've, you're, you're going to provide your warm-up packet for all our listeners. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A packet that, uh, I've worked and on assembling. Uh, it's been a, a collaboration between myself and Lane Summerlin. I uh, marched with them at Blue Coast. So I've taught with him at Troopers, Rhythm X, and at Cavaliers now. And he, as well as his wife, Ashley, are uh, front ensemble instructors at Carmel. It's something that we've, just by working together over a decade, have found it to be a best practice. And one of the things that I, I love that you wrote in your show notes was that it's important that you do less or more simple things really well than try to do everything that's really hard. And I wanted to highlight that because I think that's a huge correlation to just the general band world. I think so many of us try to achieve high enough repertoire that our concerts are not as clean as they could be. Um, so I, I appreciate that comment. Uh, Absolutely. I, I think in an ideal world, um, simplicity and high achievement is always better than doing more complex things and really struggling with them. Because in any ensemble, you're going to have uh, the advanced students, those that are in the middle and those that are just starting out. Mm -hmm. And I think I always try to engage the advanced students challenge the intermediate ones and then with the beginners give them something that they can achieve and grow throughout the season so what what uh, percentage of rehearsal time would you take when it comes to warm-ups if i had uh say an hour with just the front ensemble before we needed to move to full ensemble or before another section joined us i would take uh 15 to 30 minutes, but in that 15 to 30 minutes, it would usually be geared at if we're going to say 
we need to improve upon a scalar passage in the music. The warm-up would focus on getting our hands moving, working on our rhythm, and then it would very quickly transition into supporting and fixing uh, part of the show music. Um, so that, that way there's always a clear and immediate transition out of the warm-up routine into the show music. Uh, I've found that to be the most helpful way to get the students engaged and really focused and caring about the, the warm-up routine. Um, if it exists in its own bubble, it's admittedly not the most interesting stuff. Playing scales or playing chromatic fifths isn't yep. the most fun thing to listen to, but if you can go, all right, we're going to work on our green scales and then we're going to immediately transition into a run in the show, they immediately focus and it helps massively. That pre-teaching is something that good band directors do too, right? I mean, you have a section of the music, then you design your warm-up to do that. I think a lot of people do that, but um, I just want to reiterate that's obviously for, for all band stuff. How often do you use the Met versus not using the Met? Uh, it, it changes throughout the season. At the sure. beginning of the season, when we are working on just really learning the technique packet, the metronome is on 95% of the time. And then I work to slowly wean them off of that because ultimately the metronome, as we all know, should be um, a tool and not a crutch. But at the beginning, um, yeah, 95 to 100% of the time because until the rhythms are close enough, it's just, it's never going to line up. And also by, the, by the end of the season, um, for warmups, usually the metronome is off and I'll even just have a pair of sticks that'll help them establish the tempo and then be able to jump in if they need the help. But ultimately, by the end of the season, it's out of my hands. So they need to be able to survive on their own. It's funny you mentioned the sticks. I mean, we've all done that. You run a rehearsal with a pair of drumsticks and it's, it's uh, great. But it's huge because I think there's a lot of young teachers who just start that way and they do the whole season with the drumsticks rather than the, the reliability of the metronome. So I just want to make that plug again. It's worth the investment if people don't use a metronome, figure out your speaker situation indoors and outdoors and all that. And uh, because us as teachers, first of all, you got to think about it, um, the, the tempo more than helping the students. And then secondly, like we're imperfect, just like the students are imperfect. So that metronome, it's, it's not a replacement. You, that you use it at the end, I think is wonderful. Yes, and it also allows you to, uh, it frees up your hands. The metronome does not and it allows you to circulate around the room as well. Um, in, in the warm-up in general, um, you, ha you had focus on three different elements. You think your warm-ups um, need to focus on great rhythm, proper technique, and sound production. So what are some ways that you work on great rhythm? Uh, we already touched on that briefly, working on a metronome. Yep. Um, it's really helpful to, if students are struggling with that, do call and response rhythms, because if they can't play a rhythm and they continue to struggle to execute a rhythm perfectly, uh, until they hear it, they're going to continue to struggle with that. So just doing simple, I play it, you play it back and forth. Um, 
It also will really help to have uh, do an additive process, having people central to the ensemble play that. Um, another way is to slowly wean them off the metronome by going from quarter note metronome, play the same uh, excerpt, go from quarter note metronome to half note metronome to whole note metronome, or you can even put it where the metronome is on the upbeat so that... Mm -hmm. Again, it's a tool and not just a crutch. Um, sometimes, we already mentioned this, kids can, performers can end up being what I call metronome zombies, where they just follow the metronome, but they're not actually being analytical mm -hmm. with it. It's great. And we're going to get into the uh, tone production and technique here in a little bit, too. Um, okay, so you, you mentioned that in one of your tips sort of later on that we're going to get to, um, that most of the time the writing that's done should be done with a right-hand lead in mind. So as a non-percussionist, when I um, teach my percussion class, I, and say we're doing um, mallet exercises, technique exercises, I, you, you know, most books will have it as a right-hand lead and a left-hand lead, and then you practice both. Um, do you practice both evenly knowing that most of them are going to be right-hand leads, or do you practice more with a left-hand lead knowing that? Admittedly, <laughs> in the front ensembles I teach, it is 100% right-hand lead okay. until we get to a portion of the music that demands that we work on left-hand lead. Uh, is it a little bit narrow in its goals? Yes, but in the front ensembles I played in and teach, I would say the vast majority, it's... Uh, it's rare that you get music and you go, oh, that's left-hand lead. Okay, we need to work on that. Years will go by sometimes um, before you really need uh, a part of the music will work on right-hand lead. It's just the vast majority of the students are comfortable with that way. And it's something to go back and listen to in, in music that you've heard front ensembles is to watch the video and then listen to it and then realize that I would say upwards of 90 to 95% of most front ensemble music you've ever heard is right hand lead. So as a non-percussionist, I've been teaching a long time, but I have a question for you that I do not know the answer to. Um, how do you determine if a passage needs to be left hand lead or right hand lead? The, let me see, the best way to say this is the orientation of the notes. So if you're going to play, say in 4-4 four, four time, you're going to play eighth notes. If you were to play notes in order C, B, C, D, then E, D, E, F, G, kind of has this motion where you're kind of climbing up the instrument. So you would see that and go, okay, that's, that's the left hand, that's right hand lead. But if you were to say have 4-4 four, four again and you would play uh, like C-D-E-F-D-E-F-G, the order of those notes dictates the, the best way to keep the mallets out of the way from hitting one another. I can picture that. That helps. Thanks. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I have two things I want to mention on that. One... Um, we're going to talk about where to play on the resonator here in the, in a, or on the, on the key in a minute. But um, before that, what was I going to say? 
Oh yeah. So if you have, even if you're in concert percussion, I'm just going to make that switch here for any parts that your students are playing. Um, I would advocate that the teachers actually go back to a marimba or a vibraphone or whatever and play the part at their own technique level, because when you have to sit down and play it and then you figure out those stickings, then you mark that in your score and that's what you help teach the students. Um, so I think people, even if they're not percussionists, need to learn the mallet parts the best that they can to be able to help their students. Absolutely. And it'll help you realize uh, why the students are struggling. You go, oh, I struggle in that exact same spot too. And maybe if I'm a, a band director and supposed to be the expert, maybe I should figure this out to better help them as well. Yep. Uh, okay. So next let's talk about sound production. So let's start with what's the biggest mistake that you see? You watch groups and your own students and, and all that. What is, what's the biggest thing? Uh, one of the biggest differentiations between uh, full mature sound quality and then thinner and less mature sound quality is where you strike the instrument. Uh, in front ensemble world, we are essentially in a volume contest with a battery and a horn line. So we are going for the biggest, most full sounds all the time. Mm -hmm. And that means that playing, striking the key directly over the resonator is our best option. Now in the concert world, that's not always the best. And in fact, on uh, nicer uh, rosewood marimbas, you will intentionally strike slightly off center because it gives a uh, a more round sound but in front ensemble we want an immediate attack sound that's going to blend with the battery and that also gives us maximum volume so that's our best place to strike the instrument and that's something that you work on during your technique portion of the rehearsal as well and it's something that um it takes a lot of teaching and maintenance and I'll admit nagging the students mm -hmm. to be mindful of it. it. It doesn't come naturally. And it's something that I put a large amount of time into any group that I instruct. The next best area to strike the key would be exactly on the edge of the instrument. From marimba, where the, the two manuals are split like this, you want to strike on the accidental keys exactly on the edge. And I tell my students with the edge of the key, cutting the mallet head in half. Mm. So that half of the mallet is hanging off the instrument and half is above the instrument. That's the closest sound you can get to striking in the middle. And then the spot that you want to avoid is where the string goes through. Uh, we call that the nodal point, and that is a, a weak, thin sound that you can use occasionally as an effect if you want something very thin and brittle sounding, but it's an area of the instrument where you should only play it if you really, really mean to. Otherwise, it uh, diminishes your tone, articulation, and volume. It's funny because I'm just thinking about a marimba for a second. The, the area of proper playing is much bigger than the area that's bad, right? Like the middle area of the key is pretty large. And if you're going to be oh, at least near the resonator. So why is the kids like always play on the node, right? It seems like such an obvious thing, but 
I have so many kids that you have to mention that. It's like, I don't know if it's just more comfortable. They don't even think about it. But like, it's like a magnet. Like they always gear towards that. I don't know. If you can figure it out, let me know. I've been <laughs> trying for a couple decades now. and I've got nothing. <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's great. We all fight the same battles. Um, also, the nice thing about playing the edge on the accidental keys is that when you have a run, right, that's less, less movement than trying to get over to the resonator and you can move faster. Yep. And it's um, with during scalar passages, it's all about what your students are comfortable with. Um, at the front ensembles I teach, we work really hard to play in the center of the keys, uh, say if we're playing 16th notes. Um, I don't even consider it until we get above 180 playing 16th notes. But that's something you have to decide how much time do you want to spend on achieving that. For me, it's worth it. But if it's not worth it to you and you can get a great sound, then I'm happy for you. So when you write for the front ensemble, um, do you write on a keyboard? Do you write on an actual instrument? Or do you just put it kind of in your head because you can visualize it? When I write, I'm sitting at the desk that I'm currently talking to you from. I have a MIDI keyboard in front of me, but I usually do not write in front of an instrument. Um, I have you know, a couple of decades of experience playing, um, but I, I will at times find myself like kind of in the air, like, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, mimicking it. And if there are parts that are more technical or that I'm unsure of that as I'm writing, I'll go, I'm not sure that this is actually like a comfortable shape or body position to put the performers in, I will go and double check that on an instrument. But by and large, it's usually just on a mini keyboard or with prior knowledge of what is comfortable and what is not. Okay. Um, you mentioned here about Steven's grip with four mallets. I actually wanted to touch mainly on two mallets today, but for anybody who doesn't know about Steven's grip, you can just look it up and, and you can find that pretty easily. Um, so regarding two mallet technique, can you sort of take us through and every band director who's here, grab like a little pencil or something like you have a pair of sticks. Can you just like take us through like maybe a, a 90 second intro as to where to hold the instrument, how to like, are you pulling the sound out? Are you hitting down on the key? You know, things like that. All right. For two mallet technique, uh, I recommend I'll, I'll do this with a pencil so everybody can follow along so you don't have to have a drumstick or a mallet with you. So uh, with a mallet, I would recommend divide the mallet into thirds. Now, because I don't have a mallet on me, I'm going to grab with about this much hanging out of the back. I s start and teach where the pinky, ring, and middle finger are the foundation of the grip. Those wrap around with the nails always staying in contact with the center of the hand. Okay. And now this is different. This, uh, this is more of a front ensemble technique. It gives you uh, more contact area and helps you produce a bigger sound. And in more concert technique, people will start here and then wrap the back fingers. I found this to be helpful. Okay. So that, that's the foundation of the grip. Lightly place the thumb with the mallet going through it. And then the pointer finger touches the mallet at the first knuckle. Now you'll notice that this creates a little bit of space between the middle finger and the pointer finger. 
that's because it naturally does that. You should not force that space to be bigger or smaller because that causes the muscles in your forearm to engage and tense up. And in any technique, I would say if you are wasting energy, if you are engaging muscles and you are tense before you're even playing, that that's a waste of energy and you should find a better way to do it. How much wrist versus elbow versus shoulder and when do you use? I primarily teach wrist turn. The wrist is primary and is active. The elbow or playing from the arm is secondary and it can move passively in reaction to the wrist. It should, except for every once in a while, you're going to want to play something from the arm. Say if you're playing something really slow and majestic and legato sounding, that also needs to be loud. You can get some of this motion going on because it looks like how it sounds. But for the vast majority of your playing, it should be isolating the wrist motion, turn, turn, turn the wrist. It's okay for the elbow to move in reaction, but it should not move at the same time or in unison as the wrist. And for beginning percussionists, and even all the way through my teaching at drum corps, it's almost always turn your wrist more, use less elbow. And so do you, are you doing it with match grip or is your thumb up close to the timpani? Uh, it would be more of a match grip. Yeah. Um, the, the, the French grip, the French grip when you're moving around the surface uh, around different keys of a keyboard instrument isn't as helpful as match grip is. The idea being that match grip allows you to move around the instrument and not change the variable of this. Whereas when students hold this, they end up starting to play like this around the keyboard instrument, which fundamentally changes the wrist turn. So um, I'd like to get into some arranging things. And even for people who are not considering themselves arrangers, I will say this, I think there's a balance. I'm just gonna to talk to the concert band side of things for a, for a second. So I just did an arrangement. Um, it feels weird talking to you as a prolific writer. Um, I did a five for five percussionists along with a piece that my wife was doing because she bought the piece because it was like exactly what she needed. But I'm just gonna say it's one of these old arrangements and the percussion parts are awful. It was like cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste. So I took the, the eight, the five students that were in that group, and I know them pretty well, and was able to arrange for their skill level. I felt, it felt like mini front ensemble writing. Um, so I think people need to consider their percussionists. And if you do have something that does not um, really use their talents well, consider rearranging it as long as it's within the, the um, what would I say, the intent of the composer. Um, even in a, a, an idiom where we don't typically rearrange the music, um, I think that if it's best for your students and good for the music, then I'm, I'm down for it. Um, but in the beginning of your section of arranging tips, you, you wrote something that was really cool. Um, let's see. I basically said that you should write stuff that is not awkward to play. Yes, it should be uh, idiomatic of the instrument and it should be achievable and the, the student should feel like their efforts are going into some of the principles we already talked about great rhythm technique and tone quality not just like 
feeling like their their hands are being wrapped up in themselves. Um, th there are a few things more awkward than a part where it feels like you're you're being contorted. So, um, and it's and it's something that uh, band directors, even if you just have a small amount of experience getting on an instrument, you can quickly figure out the things that don't feel great. And it, it would be akin to um, me, a percussionist, not realizing that I'm riding across the break in a clarinet that like, it sounds great on my computer, but then if you hand it to a student, you very quickly realize that there's a, a technical limitation. So again, even for people who are percussionists, but maybe have way less experience than you have, I would advocate if you're not sure if you should have a marimba around to check your parts, you should like play through the stuff to make sure. Now you have the bank of knowledge to not have to do that. But for younger teachers, um, I say we should. And also we talked about this earlier, but in the music, um, keeping it simple, more effective that way. Uh, yes. In, in marching band, drum corps, and indoor drumline, uh, clarity of intent is king. The audience and judges need to be able to hear and understand what you're playing the first time. Mm. And there's, a, there's of course, a balance to that. You can easily get too simplistic, and it comes across um, robotic or kind of artificial or not human-sounding. But the goal is that people hear it they like it, they understand it. And the easiest way to do that is to only have a couple ideas going. It's okay to have all of your mallet percussion playing the same parts. It's oftentimes a great sound where it's kind of a blend of the marimba, xylophone, glockenspiel sound. Another common thing is to have the metallics playing a melody and then the wood instruments playing an obligato part with more motion or more rhythm underneath it. These things uh, speak well and can also help with generally how you're going to place the talent in the front ensemble as well. The wood instruments, uh, they articulate better and you generally have your stronger players on those. And then the, the weaker or younger students can then play the metallic instruments that though they're playing melody and melody is the most important part, it's oftentimes simpler parts than what the wood instruments are playing. And you also mentioned don't put your weakest players on the biggest instruments like bass drum and gong and cymbals. Of course, we've all done that. It's like, oh, you're super weak. Let me give you quarter notes on a bass drum. It's like, no, that's awful. However, so I know you said, obviously, well, not obviously, I knew that as well, that the weaker students would go to vibraphone versus marimba. What do you do if you have a couple of kids that are like super weak? Like, and you don't have the ability to cut them, right? Like, are, are they literally suspended cymbal kids? Uh, yes. Sometimes, yes, there are. I've taught high school groups where a student plays suspended cymbal and wind chimes because that's their ability level. And it does take a little bit of a sales job to convince them, uh, but 
you will have to sell them that everybody has their role and their responsibility. At, at Avon this past year, there were four rack percussionists and you mentioned large instruments. There was only one student that I had played the bass drum over mezzo forte because he made good sounds. Uh, they, a couple times, I watched them make the judgment call of things are uncomfortable. We're leading to a, like a forte or fortissimo note on the concert bass drum. Things are uncomfortable backfield. I watched this student lift and then go, oh, it's better to not play that note rather than drop a bomb that's out of time. So it's I, on paper, the concert bass drum is not the most interesting part, but I would argue outside of like piccolo and the synthesizer, that's the instrument you hear the most. And there are a few things that can absolutely destroy an otherwise excellent performance than an out-of-time forte concert bass drum note. So uh, choose wisely. And Love it. one way that I help those students, you mentioned those that are um, that really struggle or are lower on the ability scale, is during your technique, if that person only plays suspended cymbal or other things that aren't very articulate, you have them play uh, practice their suspended symbol roles and really give them feedback on, you know, is their pacing good? Is the timbre they're getting out of the instrument appropriate and dark? Are they getting too loud too soon? That, that kind of thing. And I will also then have, if you have two rack percussionists, have one person roll into the end of the exercise and the other person plays a concert bass drum note on the release. Mm. So that that way, it's not just lip service that it's important, but you're giving them the reps and opportunity to perfect that. What might seem easy skill, but is actually hugely important and moderately difficult to do well. Yeah, that's great. I that's that's a great idea. Um, there's a, a lot of people who are newer writers who, when they write for the front ensemble. Um, they basically just double the horn parts behind them. And there's so many issues that come with that um, that it's almost too much to get into. I mean, so do you have any advice for people who are newer arrangers who need to, who maybe go, oh, wait, that's me. Um, how do you approach sort of on a macro level the arrangements? You basically say, okay, here's the chord progression, and then I'm going to write an entirely different soundscape that goes with it. Or, um, you know, I know there's sometimes where you want everybody on cymbals. There's sometimes where you want everybody on keys or, or vice versa. So what is sort of like an easy way to start thinking about not just doubling what's already in the horn book? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. I, I start from the standpoint that the front ensemble is secondary to the wind ensemble during marching band. Uh, it's, it's the nature of the beast. Um, you can either accept it or struggle with it. And I've decided to accept it. And the, the front ensemble is secondary except for uh, feature moments, whether that's like a, a 
beginning of a movement or if it's like a full percussion feature. Um, you can also be primary when you're establishing, say, a new groove or a new feel or a new timbre. You can say, hey, I'm here and then kind of fade it down like a mixer. Uh, other times where you can be primary would be flourishes in the fill bar, as uh, Jay Webb would call it, usually the fourth bar of a phrase that crescendos or decrescendos to the next thing. And as you mentioned, in impacts. But what I try to do is find ways to support the wind ensemble uh, is how is what I'm writing for the front ensemble going to enhance the overall music experience from the box, meaning the top of the stadium. And sometimes it's, it is to double, say, an intricate woodwind part, but you got to be careful to not overbalance. It should be supportive. Um, then how does... Are you trying to, with your the overall energy you're creating with rhythm, volume, timbre, are you trying to complement? Are you trying to contrast the winds? Um, because you can create uh, energy and direction, not just with fast rhythms. Uh, a lot of younger arrangers tend to think that energy is just it's a scale, more energy equals faster, more notes. Um, and sometimes things like a, a well-placed shaker part um, can be like on a stove, like very hot and can be exactly appropriate. Um, but it's all about how do you help the, the wind ensemble? How do you dramatize the journey that they're taking the listener on. And if that means that we get to play some cool stuff, we get to play some licks and they don't get in the way, then great. But if not, well, that's the role of the front ensemble is then to just support. Another thing, especially when you're dealing with like, I'm thinking about a ballad, like long ex extended notes in the wind section, if you're doubling it and you're at a temperature that is low right the the brass instruments are super flat and the, i mean i've heard so many bands that just double it and it's so out of tune so like just staying away from it especially like where i'm at we don't really play indoors at all it's all outdoors so later in the season gets gets pretty cold so people need to think about the temperature they're performing in as well um getting into the electronic writing a little bit i actually wanted to just list a couple things that you wrote here because i think they're just brilliant some of which i knew and some i didn't know um, so tips for writing electronically. Electronic writing should largely support and double the winds. For long tones, avoid doubling baritones, euphoniums, and trombones. It will muddy up the sound. Instead, double the mellophone through trumpet range. Double the tuba part with strings, piano, or pad, depending on desired articulation or note length. Like, those are great. Um, support or double the winds, because um, that's opposite of the mallets, right? Yes. Um, usually the mallets are providing some kind of motion, uh, a counter line, or like I said, motion, just filling out arpeggios or something, something that is a, um, you don't necessarily hear it, but you would miss it if it was gone. Mm -hmm. uh, but with 
electronic writing, it's fully encouraged. I do a large amount of identifying which wind voice I want to double and then copy directly in Sibelius and then paste it into the synth part and then go back and edit out things that might not speak well or, or uh, might not be playable. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's like above an octave range. But yes, the synthesizer should largely enhance and seek to uh, deepen or richen the sound of the wind ensemble. And the second point you mentioned, avoiding doubling the baritone trombone range, it seems counterintuitive because if you think about the triangle of balance that we've all seen where we want the lows uh, more prominent, the a lot of percussion instruments are in that register. If you think of like the low range of a vibraphone, like F below the treble staff through um, maybe like F first space and treble. And if so, like the low, uh, low to mid bass drums hang out in that register, the low drums on quads, um, toms on a drum set, that range on vibraphone. So we already have a lot of volume in that frequency range and putting that in the synthesizers makes that even worse. And you will have frequency fighting and it will end up not enhancing, but hiding that sound of the baritones. And it's something that took me much longer than I care to admit to realize. But well, you, you just, you just helped a lot of people not have to take as long to realize that. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, it also, there's also so much power in that synthesizer because like, I think one of the biggest problems around the country is that people who overbalance the electronics, right? Uh, you're right. They need to deepen and support the wind section. But, you know, if you have a wrong level, man, it's just going to, it's just going to overpower it. And it's so easy to want to do that, right? Because you can make your band of whatever sound like whatever, you know, volume you want them to sound. Um, so sort of what's your threshold as your as you're going for what you want? Is it just like, where's the wind sound and then I wanna support that? Uh, yeah, so I say the the wind volume is here. The synths either need to be here, just below that, or at ends of movements, uh, ends of shows, it's okay to go this much more. Mm -hmm. It's pretty accepted that like, okay, we're bringing the house, it's the end of the show, it's big, it's majestic. Let's get grandma to stand up and clap. Those are the moments where it's okay to get them a little bit above the winds, but even then you need to be very, very careful about it um, because you can just easily make your wind ensemble sound small, which is a, a cardinal sin. And another huge thing, I mean, if anybody who plays any piano knows, if you go to play like an F major chord down on F3 or F2, like it just sounds awful. So as you're writing for synths, you know, keep them open fifths if you're down below middle C, maybe. Um, don't give low chords unless there's maybe a, a, a reason, but I can't really think of one. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, at the end of Avon's show this year, uh, we had that where we were playing great gate. And so 
we had the piano part in the synthesizer um, from the original, but we had to be very careful with EQing out a lot of those lows. And that was because it seemed appropriate for the effect and the original source material, but it was something that we did with a lot of care and precision. And uh, speaking on emitting thirds, we know that synthesizers are fixed pitch instruments. I found a lot of success in when you get note durations, half note or above, it's often a good practice to emit thirds or other color tones like sevenths or ninths, because those are the notes that the wind players are having to slightly adjust all the time. Um, and it's very common at the ends of, especially like the loud note at the end of a phrase, just do root in the fifth. And so that that way there's never any intonation problems between the electronics and then the winds. And then on those, those big chords, I think if you balance the synth properly, it's almost like you forget it's there. They're just there to support the winds. Yeah. And uh, I, I go for, if you're going to add sub on that, um, a sub patch on that last note or say the last phrase is you want to feel it more than you hear it. Yep. You shouldn't go, oh, wow, they added the sub. You should go like, hmm, like the stadium or the the room or something. It's just like, I feel it a little bit more. Like you feel it in your chest more so than you're like, oh, wow, that's loud. All right, let's move on to instrumentation. I, I like the story you have. Only have one xylophone and one glockenspiel and don't mic them unless you really know what you're doing. And you said Avon had only one of each and had 250 musicians and these instruments were often too loud. <laughs> yes, a, a little goes a long way. And in fact, I've grown into having one player play, alternate between playing uh, xylophone, glockenspiel and chrysalis so that that way you don't oversaturate that soprano timbre. Um, if you have all three going all the time, it just gets all very up here and unpleasant instead of it being like a, you know, kind of a dessert. You don't want it to be the main course. Well put. Um, suggested instrumentation, you have it based on the number of players that you have. Um, but basically, marimba needs to be the most amount of people, if not equal to the vibes. Um, and then through here. So you have, if you have six players, two marimbo, and then one of everything else, um, eight players, three marimba, two vibes, and then one of everything else, 10 players, three marimba, three vibes, one of everything else, but two synth, and then 12 players, three marimba, three vibes, um, two synth, two rack, rack percussion, um, and a last spot for drum set, timpani, or marimba. Yeah, yes. Um... The, the nature of marimbas is that they will have uh, most of the technique. That's where you get a lot of your, uh, for lack of a better term, technique points mm -hmm. in a front ensemble. And the best way to get a full concert hall type sound all the way up to a press box is to have more players. You also end up vast majority of the time doubling marimba parts at the octave where you have a high octave player and then one octave below that it just deepens the sound mm -hmm. um so 
you know, if you have four marimbas, you'll have two high players and then two low. But that will also help with usually the depth chart of talent that I've found that happens in front ensembles that then the you have enough places for the talented, hardworking, high-achieving students to showcase what they're doing. And on the subject of um, drum set, timpani, or marimba, sorry, drum set, timpani, or bass guitar, um, you want to be careful with adding those to the front ensemble. They should, you should only add those instruments if it supports the style of music that you're playing. Uh, Avon hasn't used timpani in a long time mm -hmm. because it feels like only certain parts of our show really require that instrument. And it's a lot of work to drag timpani around. And it's a great way to destroy your timpani as well. But now there's a lot of groups that use it really well, have figured out a way to care for the instruments and to transport them. And it's a central part of their sound. Um, so I already mentioned uh, Lane Summerlin, who teaches at Carmel. Um, Carmel has timpani because they play more classical music and they don't have a drum set. Avon, we play classical music, but usually a little bit more on like a, a modern uh, kind of pop classical type sound. So we have drum set and not timpani just because it makes sense to have those in the style of music that we play. And on the subject of bass guitar, I would say be very, very careful of adding those in marching band front ensembles because it's difficult to match articulation and sustain to the wind instruments. And the bass guitar hangs out in that uh, aforementioned mud range mm -hmm. of, in the bass, uh, bass clef range and it can muddy things up. But if you're doing a jazz show or something that requires it, have at it, but I'd be careful adding it without great reason. Yeah, I, I could also imagine, you know, a lot of times if we have a bass player and we want them to be in marching band, we put them on a bass drum, right? Like that's just an, an easy, simple move or or something else in the front ensemble. You know, I guess there is a, a, a case that could be made for, say you have an amazing bass player who really is like maybe your best player and the kid really wants to play bass. Um, you know, the bass has an enormous range. So you could basically treat that bass player as part of the horn line, but not necessarily playing anything down on the bass clef, making it maybe get more in the treble clef. I'm just thinking about a reason why maybe one out of a hundred times you might use a bass player, but your point is taken as, as far as not treating it as a quote unquote bass. Yes. And like you mentioned, the upper range of the bass guitar can actually speak really well sometimes a little too well, but that's uh, one solution if you have that great performer and you want to include them is get them more in the upper range. And it can at times blend well with uh, like the mid voices, like mellophones, altos. It's one strategy to uh, give them something besides the long notes 
and having them in the low register all the time. They also might be one of your soloists. You know, we, there's all these chamber music things that happen in all the shows now, and there's one front ensemble with the bass player as the soloist. Um, yeah, would work would work well as too. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is mallet selection. I think that's probably a pretty deep subject that we can't really get into too much. But sort of, if somebody doesn't really have any idea, are there some basic principles as to which mallets to choose, and maybe somewhere to go that sort of has is a guide for? Okay, if I'm on marimba, here's a couple pairs of mallets that I should have. If I'm on vibes, here's a couple pairs of mallets. Yes. Uh, the general principle is that in front ensemble, the mallets are going to be heavier. So that will help with overall volume production and length of tone. Uh, and all the major companies have, if you go on their website, they will generally categorize things between concert and or marching mallets. Now, there there is an in-between area where you can use both. They blend well with one another and then with the other instruments, mallet selections as well. And it is worth it to spend the extra money to get marching mallets. Uh, if you're already doing marching band, you're spending a certain amount of money just to do that. I understand every program situation is a little bit different but if you're doing marching band you're already spending a good amount of money spend the money on high quality outdoor mallets because it'll only help how your front ensemble sounds and if you buy concert mallets you're going to break them and have to replace them anyway amen yeah it also it also saves your concert mallets yeah, absolutely. Um, and when mallets are heavier, they're louder. And the students will struggle at first with this, but ultimately they can lay things at a lower height, which will help you be more accurate than having to uh, play with the light concert mallets and kind of go caveman style on the instrument to be heard. It's like to make a, go a golf analogy. There's a reason there's a pitching wedge and a five wedge, a five iron, like they're different. We use them differently. Don't just try to muscle up the pitching wedge every time. Yeah, um, Also, there's, there's nothing more caveman than grabbing onto a mallet and going to use it and seeing the electrical tape around the middle because it's snapped, but you still need to use it. You know what's funny? I swear they break all at the same time when it happens. Like you spend $1,000 on mallets or whatever it is. And then, and, and all your teachers say, you're good, you're good. And then before you know it, you're not good anymore. So one thing I'm bad at is spending a certain amount of money every year. We spend to, tend to spend a lot of money at once and then go a couple of years and then have to spend a lot of money again. That's just my own personal story. It's, uh, it's kind of like when you move into a new house and you put light bulbs in, mm, totally. you put them all in at the same time, and then they all start to die at the same time also. Um, one thing that can help with budget with mallets is uh, many companies, you can keep the mallets. A lot of times mallet shafts don't always break, but the yarn becomes frayed. You can save those mallets that the shaft is intact, but the, the mallet head is frayed, and then send them back to the company to have them rewrapped. And most companies are happy to do that because it's less material on their end. And it also shows them that you, uh, 
you're taking care of their equipment and you care it's that you know you, you want you want to work with them you like their product yep. please here it is we took it but what will you fix it for us no it's, it's funny you, you just kind of segue into that something else i was thinking about that is funny like what so timpani mallets same thing you can like you can, you know, rehead them. You can buy the little pack. I think they're what six or seven dollars or something. It's a little felt thing, and then you you can with two hands you can you can remake it like brand new. It's funny. I always go, so why do these fray so much? And then I think about it. Well, if you're a percussionist playing timpani and you're sitting back there listening to the flutes work on pitch, and you have this little fuzzy thing, you can just easily kind of pick at it, and you probably don't need, mean anything by it. But everybody, I want you next time you go into your band room to look at your timpani mallets and see do they look like Einstein's hair. And if they, if they do maybe trim it a little bit, um, and then, uh, just order some of those replacement heads and they're super easy to do. Um, but before you know it, you'll have a whole rack of new timpani heads. I'm uh, sorry, new timpani mallets. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and then last thing I want to do here is get into your, you have a ton of do's and don'ts here of things that, that are, uh, are great for people. And if, if it's okay with you, I'm going to, can I put your show notes up on the, the website as well so that people can access all this information if they want to. Yeah. Yeah, great. Um, okay, so number one, location. Do put them in front of the field on the 50 unless you really know what you're doing. Don't put the front ensemble in the back or off to the side. This creates many problems with ensembles, timing and power for amplifications. Even though the visual people always want to do something weird. It's funny, I, I have John, my visual guy, sort of in my head right now. Because anytime we want to move him off to the side or one year, God forbid, we were actually backfield, he, he just hated the entire experience. And uh I, I apologize in the back. It was great visually, but musically not so great. And if you take anything from this, please, that last point, please, there's a reason why the, why the top drum corps and marching bands and indoor groups do this. Um, the way I handle this is whenever a visual person wants to change where the front ensemble is, I say, great, since you're influencing me, I get to write some drill charts this year. <laughs> I, I noticed in this year's show for Avon, like when do you have when do you have the front ensemble duck and get out of the way and use the the mallets in front of them or the instrument in front of them as a as a prop to hide behind? Uh, sometimes, well, it's honestly who we're not playing. That was about to be a dust statement, but it helps uh, if say there's something a visual event happening on the fifty, the pit's not playing the pit isn't the focus. They're not part of the movie and they're not part of the soundtrack. So instead of giving your students something to do, it's oftentimes nice just to get them out of the way. And it's something that uh, visual judges do notice and often comment on that we're just clearing the stage. Yeah, uh, I noticed it right away. I was like, whoa, they're gone. That's great. How many were in your front ensemble this year? Uh, I think it was 25. There was no number for 25. So with 25 kids, who, what were they playing? Uh, had eight on marimba, nine vibraphones, one person that played glockenspiel, xylophone, and crotales, two synthesizers, one drum set, and four playing rack percussion. And it was a lot. It's a, a monster task just because of the size of the ensemble. It's very wide, but it worked out acoustically that even pre-amplification things sounded in balance and characteristic. And you must have an enormous band room and storage area. 
because I think that would take up my entire band room. Uh, yes, there's, there's a closet that we have outgrown and we're currently figuring out other solutions so that not only can we store, but the kids can practice in that room. Yeah, that's a good problem to have, isn't it? Um, yeah. You also mentioned ensemble timing, when they should look at the, at the drum major and more importantly, when they should not look at the drum major. The only time to have students in the front ensemble look at the drum major is at beginning of movements. Maybe during like an eight count applause point. Uh, if you have the front ensemble watch the drum major, physics of sound say that they will always be ahead, right? We clean the ensemble from the back of the field to the front. So if the person uh, on the back hash is watching and playing with the drum major's hands, their sound is physically going to take longer to get to the audience than the front ensemble member that is also watching. Um, it's counterintuitive. As musicians from the beginning of concert band, we're told to watch, watch, watch. In marching band, you don't do it. Just please, please, please don't do it. And it, it will save you a lot of times. So instead, what you should do is establish one or two people in the front ensemble. Oftentimes, the person that is uh, centermost or is playing a steady rhythm or sometimes the most dense rhythms. So I think of like having one marimba player or maybe your drum set player. That person will listen to the battery and then everybody else, their job is to be a chamber musician and fit in with the sound and usually play the go from out to in. And then in the pit, usually the back row ends up listening towards the front row. That's the best practice I've found to make the pit sound great on its own, but then also to achieve great full ensemble timing. And especially when you have the back row listening to the front row of the front ensemble, that's because I would say mainly because your best players are in front and you want the weaker kids listening to the stronger players. Yes, absolutely. Um, looks are everything in marching band. So best players usually end up in the front and in the center. Imagine if we put all the racks in the front. <laughs> uh, that would be a bold strategy. <laughs> um, okay, last thing I wanted to get to here is um, your discussion of um, amplification. You know, I know there's a lot of groups who, who don't do it yet, and they're very purist in, in that way. Um, I remember our story about seven or eight years ago when we decided to start amping the mic micing stuff, first of all, it was enormous. It was like the first rehearsal. I was like, whoa, that's such a difference. Like I was so used to not being able to hear anything, right? Because especially if you're a smaller group like we have and you have like two marimba players, right? Like that sound's not going to cut when the band's playing. Um, so we actually took, because we did it on like a zero budget, we took, we had a, um, what do you call it? What do you call the input where all the microphones go into? Is it the snake? Mixer. The mixer. We had one in a wall that was like in an old recording studio. So I literally like took it out of the wall and then, um, and then we plugged it in and took a bunch of mics and cords that we had with zip ties and, and all that. So I guess, I guess sort of what is, if, what, what is the reason for doing it if there's somebody who's against it? 
the main reasons to amplify uh, your instruments is to get characteristic concert hall sounds up to the top of the press box where the judges and audience and it will allow you to play with better technique and get better acoustic sounds if you go back and you compare so amplification wasn't allowed in dci until 2004. go back and listen to what front ensembles were playing how they were playing the sounds they were making and what you could hear upstairs in 2003 and then go and watch the very next year in 2004 and see that uh, the playing became uh, more refined, less caveman, as I would say, because they were able to play uh, and get better acoustic sounds out of their instrument. So say you've decided that you're going to do this for the first time. Where do you, how do you actually amplify them? Where do you place the mics on the instruments? For marimbas, you will generally have two microphones. They will be underneath the keys. Uh, every microphone is slightly different, uh, but if you get the microphone placement too close to the instrument, it will get uh, too much attack sound and not uh, sustain or tone. So you have to mess with it a little bit, but it's usually around a foot or so is a good place to start. And then you can use your ears to just move it up or down. Um, you use two microphones. Some people use three now. Um, if they have uh, extended range marimbas, like say four and a half or five, but if you have uh, a low A or a 4.3 marimba, two will do it. And you put one in towards the upper end of the instrument and one towards the lower end. So you're essentially dividing the marimba into thirds. Yep. And then vibraphone will usually have one. It's vibraphones are different, difficult to amplify because the pedal usually ends up being close to the microphone. So then you have to uh, make sure that your pedal isn't squeaking and you're not amplifying that. <laughs> um, there. Yep. Yeah, that's that's a that's a show killer when you hear a great band we hear in the middle of a phrase um but i would really recommend there is a lot of great resources there is an outstanding facebook group called the marching arts audio discussion that has a lot of people from expert level in amplifying and electronics in marching arts all the way through beginning band directors that are starting for the first time. The community is very helpful. Uh, it's all been archived so you can search uh, if you just want like first time microphone recommendations. Like I'm buying microphones, what do I buy? You can search that and find that. Um, it's, it's an outstanding resource and the community is really supportive, which is not always common on the internet. Love it. Um, so a couple final things. First of all, I, I thank you very much for making the time here. Um, and happy Thanksgiving to you if I haven't said so already. Hey, happy Thanksgiving to you too. Um, tips for younger teachers. I usually ask this question, but I mean, I think everything we've talked about in the last hour are tips for younger teachers. Is there anything else that maybe is a general message that 
that you would like younger teachers to know or maybe something that you didn't learn except for through experience? Talk less, play more. Love it. Um, some people learn through talking. Everybody learns through doing. If something is important to you and you then want it to be important to the students, you have to show them over time that it's important to you, whether that be caring for the instrument, taking great care of your instrument, uh, whether that's uh, you want the, the setup to look great, you know, you want to line up your keyboards, or if you really are insistent on laying in the center of the key, something like that, the message must be taught and retaught and done with patience so that it doesn't turn the students off. If you just try to forcefully teach it once or twice and try to achieve it through brute force, you will oftentimes make the students resentful and then they'll do the opposite. <laughs> um, besides making sure we put our front ensembles in on the 50 and in the front, are there any other requests that you might have on behalf of all front ensemble writers and teachers for band directors. What are things that band directors can do for you to make your life, your lives easier? Uh, yeah, one other thing. Please put talented people in the front ensemble. Do not use the front ensemble as the remainder of the band. Um, now, there are times, and I, I understand it, say uh, saxophonist, that's a senior breaks their leg and they really want to be in it. Okay, cool. We, we can find a place for you, but the front ensemble can have such a huge positive impact in how your band sounds. And if you were only ever putting um, the misfits or lower achieving students in the front ensemble, you're never going to have a great sounding front ensemble or a culture of excellence, which is what we want in any part of the band. But because the front ensemble is the last section of the marching band that has really evolved, right? Uh, we had drums and brass and even guard before front ensemble. Sometimes there's an antiquated notion that the front ensemble should be treated less than. Please, please, please don't do that. It can be such a huge positive, but you have to build that. And because they're in the front, for the front ensembles that don't not only play an amazing level, but they perform like their facial expressions and their their pulsing and everything. When they're amazing, I mean, we've all had front ensembles that we watch, and we can't take our eyes off the front ensemble. We can't even watch the band and back because the front is so good. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, it you got to have the right kind of person. You have to have the right talent, the right teaching invest in the front ensemble and it is well worth your time, money, and effort. Lee, if there's people who would like to reach out to you for maybe some advice or opinions or things like that, I know they can reach you uh, easily by Googling your name. Is that okay with you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm on Facebook also. A uh, quick message and I can get back to you. Thanks so much for spending your time, Lee. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. We sincerely appreciate you taking your valuable time and listening to the Growing Band Director podcast. Your students are very lucky to have a band director like you. If you have any suggestions for episode topics or think you have an area of expertise to share on a show with us, please reach out. 
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your band director friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our YouTube channel, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to The Growing Band Director. See you next week.